let's get into this. Um, in the first meeting, I'm going to not go into it as deep here, but we reoriented ourselves as to where we're at in the text. Matthew, if you recall from the first message, uh, records faithfully the fact that almost everything important in Matthew is done on a mount. You know, uh, for instance, we talked about Matthew 16, so let's choose Matthew 24 and 25. After Jesus, uh, on Matthew 23, when Jesus uh, begins like uh, the climax of his covenant lawsuit, Matthew's all about God. Jesus is standing uh, as the total representative of all the prophets from, a from Abel to Zechariah. And he is uh, uh, completing their message and speaking out of their tradition. And the prophets in the Old Testament recalled who God was, what his covenant with his people are, and that Israel was violating the covenant. So Hosea uses the metaphor, for instance, of unfaithfulness in marriage as the way they were, and they're not, Israel's not being faithful to their covenant husband. So the bride of Christ idea, for instance, is not a New Testament idea. It's a total Bible idea. And so um, Jesus standing in that tradition, Matthew and Luke especially, are all about God's final prophet of in that in that sense, final Old Testament prophet, the beginning of New Testament, is basically standing, uh, saying all the same things the Hebrew prophets had said, that my people are being unfaithful to me, and therefore I'm there's no longer going to be a chance for repentance. They were there was one diaspora in, in 722 BC when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. There was a second diaspora of dispersion of the Jews in, in 597 and 587 BC when Babylon, in two waves, conquered the southern kingdom. Uh, there was another di diaspora in around 335 BC when Alexander the Great conquered that territory and dispersed the Jews among his uh, territories. And finally, the Romans. And so at the time of Christ, there are Jews living all over the Roman world. Live, uh, they have synagogues in every city and so forth. And ironically, the Jews outside of Israel were actually more fulfilling what Israel was supposed to do. They were bringing Gentiles into the synagogue and converting Gentiles to Judaism. And that's why you had two classes of people outside of the Jews attending the synagogues, but not in Jerusalem. Uh, you had uh, God-fears, people who believed in the God of the Bible, like Cornelius, we see in Acts 10, or the Roman centurion in the Gospels, and so forth. And you uh, you have th those who actually convert to Judaism. And there's <laughs> often, you know, we've gone over a lot of times the reasons why the, the people didn't convert fully. So, in any case, uh, you know, Jesus uh, ends up his final climax on, you know, Matthew 21, when he says the kingdom will be taken away from you and it will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it, which is what the church is called to do. But that same principle is always working in history. When the church doesn't produce the fruit of it, the kingdom is taken away from it. You know, a lot of you know we, we talk a lot in our church about the fundamentalist modernist controversy, right? And the modernist churches have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller ever since the modernists started being the modernists. 
mass exodus because the kingdom is being taken away from them. Right? And uh, for a long time, the, the conservative churches were, were growing up until about the 1950s. And since then, the conservative churches have started to decline, except the places that are primarily charismatic and Pentecostal. Those are expanding worldwide. So uh, the kingdom is always being taken away from those who don't produce the fruit of it. And it's always been given to those who do produce the fruit of it. Always. So on the mountain, uh, Jesus uh, stands and he faces Jerusalem. And it's supposed to be like for those who read the Old Testament, it's supposed to remind you of, of Mount Ebal and Mount uh, Gilboa, where the uh, God commanded the Israelites uh, to speak the curses of God from, from one mountain to the other Israelites on the other mountain, foreshadowing what, what you know that, that if you don't obey the covenant, you'll be exiled from the land. And uh, if you don't obey the covenant as a Christian, you'll be, you'll be exiled from a land of promises. You know, a lot of Christians wonder why they're having trouble with their jobs or this or that or that. Because you're, you can't really do this Christian thing if you're not intending to be fully obedient in all things. Incomplete obedience is disobedience. So uh, Jesus stands on uh, the Mount of Olives and he faces Mount Zion where Jerusalem is because he's purposely mimicking what God commanded the Moses and the children of Israel to do in the Old Testament. And he, pronounced, he stands over it and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children under my wings like a mother hen gathers her children, but you would not have it. And then he says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now, several chapters earlier, he had chased the money changers out of the temple and people think, you know, because we're so perverted about money in our country, when you're not, we're materialist, and we, we have, our idolatry has a lot to do with money usually, a lot of people anyway. And uh, so we think that Jesus was upset because they were selling. He was upset because they were selling in the courts of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be where they were bringing the Gentiles into the, into the temple of God through. And there was a whole regiment of things that the Gentiles had to do to become part of God's people. So um, he called, He says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. In the court of the Gentiles, which is why in the book of Acts, the uh, early church actually meets daily, Acts 3, they went up to the hour of prayer, in the court of the Gentiles to pray for the outpouring of the Spirit on all nations. Right? So, uh, so uh, you know, Jesus uh, had called it my house. Now he says, your house. Look at the wording in Matthew 7, uh, 23, 39. He calls it your house and is left to you desolate, which is the same word as in the Septuagint, Greek version of the Old Testament, after God pronounced judgment on Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, and the ark of God is stolen and so forth, 
And after, I won't worry about it, John. Um, after all that happens, um, what, uh, I lost my train of thought. What, um, yeah, so when, when uh, is it Hophni's wife or Phineas? I always forget which, which one's wife is giving birth. It's Phineas, somebody look it up. It's in First uh, Samuel, probably around chapter 3, 4, 5, somewhere in there. But anyway, at, as she's giving birth, she names the, the son Ichabod because the, the Philistines had won the battle and stolen the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God among his people. And she's saying the glory of God has departed Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 23. In his Mount Olivet Address, he's saying the glory of God is no longer going to be in this temple. Uh, the time of temple sacrifice is over because I'm about to be the true sacrifice. And no longer will my glory fill the temple. Because I would have a new temple, who is Jesus himself, and then the body of Christ, especially starting at Pentecost. And I will fill that temple, and that temple will fulfill what the temple was always supposed to do, Export the presence of God to all the nations. Right? Okay, so that's where, that's just an example of mountains in Matthew. And that's purposely done on Mount, the Mount of Olives uh, because it's very in keeping with fulfilling all the prophetic things about mountains in the Old Testament. All right, so mountains are where heavenly sanctuaries and earthly sanctuaries meet. Uh, the top represents God's glory. The bottom represents the gates of God's glory spilling into the world. Mountains are where God makes covenant with his people. Eden, the Garden of Eden was a mountain. The tabernacle in the wilderness was a type of mountain, and so forth. In the Bible, there's miniature mountains called altars, pillars, stones, trees, ladders. We've talked in the first service about how Jacob's ladder is a type of mountain where God ascends and descends. And so, uh, Matthew deliberately records every important thing Jesus does in Matthew is on a mountain. So, as John brought out last week, the Sermon on the Mountain <laughs> is done on a mountain, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, so, and it's purposely... It's Jesus, God made covenant with his people at Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, where his glory came down on Mount Sinai, and he told the people, beware lest any of you could touch the base of the mountain. They had to set up uh, barriers all around the mountain, right? And they were, God put the fear of God on them, and they were uh, forbidden to touch the mountain, right? And Moses a foreshadowing of Christ alone goes up, and he receives the commandments of God on tablets of stone and brings them down to the people. Whereas Jesus is Yahweh. We talked about in the first service a lot about what Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, and Yahweh is Savior. And uh, it's more than, you know, people will say, well, Jesus means Savior. It's more than Savior. It's the holiest, most important name of God in the Bible. Yeshua saves. Yeshua means that God is Savior and God will save his people. And that's who, what, who Jesus is ontologically and who he is 
uh, economically to understand those theological ideas, which we covered in the first message. Did we get a recording of the first message or not? That one did record. Okay. Okay. So John brings out that Jesus is the true Moses. He ascends the mountain, but unlike Sinai and Horeb, the people of God are invited up the mountain to meet with God. Because in Christ, we can draw near to God. Right? So the disciples get to go up the mountain. And if you read the first two verses of Matthew 5, it says that Jesus went up on a mountain, and his disciples came to him, and he told them. So a lot of people don't understand. Like Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are... What it, are the beginning teachings of what Jesus' law is, what Jesus' ways are, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Starting with the Beatitudes. Uh, so John covered all that in the last three weeks. And we reviewed it in a little more detail in the first service. I don't want to get into any more than that this service. Listen to the uh, podcast or don't rob yourself. But I guess... Uh, by missing the first services all the time. So a lot of people still miss the first service. Not, not, not that very many, but you're kind of robbing yourself if you do, because God has given us two wonderful Bible teachers in this church that you <coughs> would do well, you would benefit greatly by hearing. So uh, as John brought out last week and the week before, is uh, God is a God of rewards. And as I talked about in the first service, I tend to underestimate that because I tend to be duty oriented and such. and we we need to think about the fact that in Christ there are conditions and there are blessings you know I'm always dealing with people who've messed up their life because someone has prophesied over them various promises and things without any of the conditions with it so you're going to do this and that and the other great thing uh, but Anything that God is saying to you will always say, if you obey, then you'll eat the best of the land. Isaiah 1, right? So, um, there's you know there's not a lot of blessing for people who do part of God's will. You know, you always kind of say, you always hear people who are kind of not pressing that much into God's will to say, well, I still do this little part, or I, I do this little part, or I do this. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, have mercy. Uh, you know, as Samuel said to uh, Saul, incomplete obedience is disobedience. Right? And what you're called to, when Jesus uh, ends Matthew on a mountain, uh, he tells the disciples to go ahead of me, to Galilee and so forth, and he's he is actually ascends from the mountain. He, he says the last thing he says, Matthew twenty eight eighteen through twenty, is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them American Christianity to do the things they want to do about my will, and ignore the rest. That's kind of the mega church formula. It's kind of like. Well, we have classes for those who want to consider getting baptized in the Spirit. We have classes for those who want to consider getting better marriage. We, you know, 
uh, we'll take your money, even if you only want to give two or three percent, and not tie the true tithe. <laughs> uh, you know, and we'll be happy because we have. If we get enough people, we can still be rich on that. You know, and it, the whole thing is like this: how to how to let everyone pick and choose what they're going to get of the a la carte line of God's word. Now, I don't understand why the preachers of America and I don't understand like when, when I discovered the a la carte line in high school, I had never had white bread before. My family didn't have white bread. I learned to like white bread peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and white bread pizza. And I would always uh, steal a few ice cream sandwiches each day because I didn't have enough money to buy as many as I wanted. And I didn't buy anything healthy. <laughs> I had, you know, I ate white flour and sugar because I was a kid. And uh, I wasn't about to eat, like, the vegetables or something. Uh, we have a whole country of kids, supposedly, that are growing up not eating, like, they don't eat vegetables and they eat, like, all kinds of pastry, uh, toaster, what's that stuff? Oh, uh, Pop-Tarts. I'm always just teasing Deanna because she likes Pop-Tarts. Uh, we used to allow our kids one pop tart a year. <laughs> so, uh, just kidding. All right. So let's get into this. Um, so this this whole section that John read to us so well starts with uh, with in verse nineteen. He's talking about a change of heart that has to happen. Our treasure has got to become the Lord Himself. Because part of the flesh's system is, you know, uh, Christopher Lash's classic work in the 1970s called The Culture of Narcissism, which almost everyone says we're 10 times more narcissistic now than we were 40 years ago. You know, the advertising industry tells you you've got to have a cooler car and better clothes and, you know, whatever. It's all about you, 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 you. There's actually, like, America is like, Whoever has the most toys is winning. Mm -hmm. And we actually raise men anymore. The reason there's 60% of college graduates are women is most American men have defined maturity as when you get more expensive toys. And so you see all these guys driving some sports car that, you know, when they're 50. Meanwhile, they're divorced and terrible dads. and, and uh, But they're... You know, but my Maserati does 185. <laughs> it, I lost my license, now I can't drive. Alright. <laughs> so, in Matthew 6, 19-34, if you think about it, it's one thought. So that's why a lot of people get a little, like, like how does it, in verse 24, when he says, no one can serve two masters, Right? Because he'll either hate the one and love the other or so forth. You can't serve God in money. Then he goes on and says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Now, I put somewhere. I don't think I, don't, I haven't been following my notes yet. Somewhere I've got to land on my notes somewhere. Somewhere I thought I put what the Greek word for anxious was. Now, uh, there it is. Baramao. Uh, uh, which means uh, to, to, to be anxious or to worry, uh, ESV probably more correctly uh, translates it anxious. NASB, NKJV, NET, 
I thought I had that somewhere, but I'm just remembering it. Uh, is that on the page somewhere? It has uh, worry. And then uh, King James says, take no thought for it. Now, this is actually one of those classic uh, contexts where um, if you understand the King James usage, it's a pretty good translation. If you don't understand it because of the way modern people think, Jesus is not saying don't have any responsibility for or don't put any thought into. He's saying don't have like an, an inordinate caring thought that's from like your selfish you know, point of view. Like what's in this for me? Most people even approach church as what's in it for me. So, um, so again, that word means to be anxious, to be troubled with cares, to be inordinately concerned for, to seek to promote one's interest, caring for or providing oneself in contrast to caring or providing for God. So I actually, in your bulletin, there's a little article by a guy named Francis Chan. And I mean him no disrespect but to say that I've read some of his books, and he's, you're, he's a very typical, very watered-down evangelical, and even he can see one of the idolatry problems in our country, where uh, lots of people are radical Christians when they're single, then they get married, and it becomes about like protecting our kids from the world, and they don't do anything for evangelism or, or outreach or live radical ever again. And, uh, and then they wonder why they lose their kids when they grow up. Your kids will not, if your kids don't see you financially laying it on the line, staying up till three in the morning, casting demons out of people, you know, staying up till two, counseling people, really serving, helping, taking people that smell bad into your house, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, risking bed bugs. You know, if they don't ever see you laying it on the line for the kingdom, they're going to basically say, my parents don't really believe this stuff. It's just something they do on Sundays to get their minimum down payment in so they can hopefully have their maximum benefits with 12 easy payments. Um, your kids will grow up to be radical for the Lord if they see you being radical for the Lord and taking chances. It's as simple as that. That's why it's, you know, like my dad was a very wonderful Christian. The only thing I was raised knowing about finances was that once a month my dad would sit at this desk and be paying bills and he'd be really mad about how high the bills were and stuff. And uh, you better not get near dad during that time. So I later found out, um, you know, when we were, my parents were Catholic, but they became born again Christians and they were charismatic Catholics and they cast demons out of people and they led lots of people to Christ and they really laid it on the line for God, but my dad didn't ever talk about any of this stuff. So I found out when I was 25 from my mom, you know, one of the reasons, like, I would, like all I knew is we weren't going to this Catholic church anymore. We were driving 30 miles to another one because the priest of the one had said, we don't want any of that born again, baptizing the spirit, renewal stuff here. <laughs> Go find a church where they want that. So we did. And... Um, I remember as a boy being hurt and embarrassed because everybody mocked my family 
because they built this big, like, uh, it would be in today's money about $5 million, but it was about a $1.5 million sanctuary back then. And they would actually print in the bulletin who was in the $100 club and the $500 club and the $1,000 club. I didn't know because my dad didn't share with the kids that was just not his way, which you really should. As a dad, you really should learn how to connect with your kids and you tell them why you're doing what you're doing in Christ. And I told all my kids all about how I was, all my sins as a teenager and what God did to draw me to God. And, and how I lived my Christian life and why all the time. They grew up they, and they loved all those daddy stories. Those are my pagan ones. But, uh, but uh, you know, um, you know, I found out when I was 25, the reason we weren't in any of those lists is my dad. Went to the priest. And he says, the Bible says not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. My dad gave a true 10% of his gross income, as you're supposed to. You know, if you tie it on your net, you're saying, it's kind of a subtle way of saying Caesar's Lord, like he gets his cut first. So he, uh, you know, tied on his gross income to the church, and he gave many offerings above it. When my brother died, he set up a scholarship fund in his name and so forth. But he never told us that kind of stuff. All I knew is everybody made fun of us. In a rich city, everyone made fun of us because we weren't in these clubs. And my dad just never, you know, he never got offended or upset about it. That just was what he knew the scripture wanted him to do. So, um, let's, let's, uh, so anxious is kind of a thing where, you know, one of the most, I was a pagan. By the time my, my parents came to Christ, I was very angry at my father. I had a lot of bitterness and a lot of rage inside me. And, uh, and I didn't, that didn't get delivered until I came to Christ at age 17. And then I was reconciled to my dad and had a wonderful relationship with him from there the rest of my life. And he taught me many good things about God. But, uh, uh, But one of the main factors of why I came to Christ when, when I started going through all this bizarre stuff at age 17, you know, I was very into drugs and the occult side of it, and I actually had out-of-the-body experiences where my spirit left my body, and I went to hell a number of times. And I couldn't stop that happening for a long time until I became a full Christian and got delivered from demons myself and learned to cast out demons and all that kind of stuff, which is why, you know, I knew how to cast out demons as soon as I got saved because I had to to to, to get started. And uh, so, you know, I came to Christ mostly because I saw my parents paying the price. Really. And, uh, and even though I was so angry at them, when push came to shove, I said, you know what? What they got is real. And what my friends and I have is... Uh, I pretty much knew that as soon as I was to stop dispensing free drugs, I would lose a lot of friends, <laughs> which happened, of course. So uh, the whole the point here is that what Jesus is getting at in this whole passage, Matthew six nineteen through thirty four, is making Him your treasure and having your life be all about seeking first Him and His kingdom, and you can't serve two masters. 
you can't go to you can't like have the Lord's Day sometimes, but then you know I don't go to the Lord's Day if if you know there's a good basketball game or whatever. So um, in Luke 17, Jesus says this: Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him? When he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do some of the things which are commanded you, oh, sorry, that's the modern translation, all the things which are commanded to do, Say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, so here's what I kind of want to challenge us with today. You know, um, I recently was invited to sit in with some other pastors who have heard a lot about our church. And and they said, well, you guys have this radical Christianity. And I said, not really. <laughs> I said, what we have is about one-third of the people in our church have been discipled, they've really done the studies, they've grown in character, and they're really solid and mature. About one-third of the people are progressing quite nicely toward that, and about a third of the people come on Sunday, sometimes when it's not too convenient and convenient. And... Uh, that's a higher percentage than what's going on in the in the culture out there, but it's the, but it's not acceptable. And I hope, you know, they used to uh, tease me by saying, uh, "No matter what God does, brother Greg will never be satisfied." Uh, I'm content with what the Lord has done, but I want to be fully obedient. I want this to become a biblical church. I want that for you. I, want, I, I don't want to see people that I can look at their spirit and say, wow, their whole family is experiencing frustration and chastisement from God because he's trying to get them to fully line up with his will in every area. And they don't even sometimes have enough spiritual discernment to know that's why you got that bad boss or, or whatever. God's trying to get your attention. And it's kind of amazing to me sometimes how many guys will come to Christ and they'll even, like, tithe for the first time, and then they'll get some blessing or some raise or and so forth, and, and how little that lasts sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever God shows you anything, the Bible says the Word of God is like silver refined seven times. So whenever God shows you something, when you're a baby Christian, he'll usually put some blessing with it, like his presence or whatever. Uh, you shouldn't need that obedient. You should just love to be obedient because you love him. But he'll then allow your flesh in the world and the devil to try to steal that from you. And that's why you get guys that get baptized in the spirit and have the presence of God one day, but not as a way of life. Because God is not going to dwell among a people who do their whatever percentage they want to do of his will. Now, I know I'm stepping on toes today by saying this message. But 
that's what Samuel said to Saul. You know, when Saul said, we did kill the Amalekites, they went on the mission. And they wiped out most of the Amalekites. <laughs> but then they coveted and saved some of the sheep for themselves and so forth, and they spared Amal. Uh, uh, what was the name there? Agag, the king of Amalek. And what, what pe people don't do because they don't read their whole Bible is they don't understand that going back, remember the Amalekites were the ones who wouldn't let the children of Israel pass through on their way to the land. And God declared, I will make war against the Amalekites for every generation until I've destroyed them from the face of the earth. It took 500 years to do that, but God hadn't changed his mind. You know, people think that like the evolutionists are really impressive because they've discovered that now that the galaxies are still unfolding and that there's new stars being formed and new galaxies and the universe is growing, they should have just read Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. He never rescinded that. He said, let there be light. So when God says, let there be light, it's not like if John Gray or Greg Weiss says, let there be light, and we go flip a switch. When God says, let there and that's all the light you get, because we're, we're not much of a light providers. We, you know, God is the source of light. And uh, when he says, let there be light, it's let there be light, 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 light. New stars, new galaxies will continue to expand and spin off unless there's some eternal purpose later on that we don't see in the Bible where eventually he says, that's enough. Like, <laughs> but I don't get that impression from Scripture. So, I mean, like we should have expected that all along. That's what the Scripture says. All right, so I guess kind of want to get down to something like this. Who are you serving? Boy, it's late. Um, I apologize. <laughs> but I'm not going to repent. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of you know a, a guy who's kind of a secular social prophet named Bob Dylan, and he went through a Christian phase, and he was part of a megachurch in California, and he was being discipled by the megachurch pastors, because in megachurches, if you're famous and celebrity, as soon as you get saved, they parade you in front of the whole world. And so he wrote two Christian albums. A lot of people don't know that. During his Christian phase, all the secular stations stopped playing all this other stuff because they can't stand someone becoming a follower of Christ. And uh, so Bob Dylan kind of like disappeared from the radio for a few years. But then the uh, mega church couple had an affair and fell in the, and he was so disillusioned that he went back to being pagan. So, uh, but. His Christian albums were kind of cool and exciting. And then he did one uh, album from a Jewish perspective that was kind of his rebuke to the mega church movement, but that was called Ring Them Bells. And it was basically this wonderful song to Ring Them Bells. It was kind of calling, like he was saying to the Christians, rise up and become who you're supposed to be. And the whole, the whole song is saying, the world is waiting for you to do that. Pretty powerful stuff if you ever get a chance to listen to it. I have a copy of the CD at home somewhere. Um, one of his songs was You're Gonna Have to Serve Somebody, which is basically right out of Scripture. You cannot serve God in idols. You never hear any gospel presentations today that say turn away from idols. 
But all of them in the New Testament say that. Look up the word idol. 1 John 5, 21, after a whole book about how you can test your spiritual reality versus your religious deception unreality, he ends the book by saying, my little children, guard yourself from idols. And as we heard in the first service, whenever it says beware or guard, it's because people have a tendency to do this. And if you don't beware, it's going to get you. And if you let it get you, it's going to kill you. Everyone had, one of the reasons Israel experienced so much wrath and judgment is they had a prosperity gospel doctrine that God would never chastise or discipline his people. It was going to be all blessing all the time. God, God always blesses us. He always heals everything. Everyone, it's all hunky-dory. But that's just not biblical. Just taking certain verses out of context. So, um, I want. I, I guess I want to quickly just share a, a testimony. And I, I got a little personal in the first service, and I'm not trying to blow my own horn. You know, but people, you know, ask me, well, why why is your sons and daughters turn out so well, and different things like this, and why is your marriage so good and stuff? Because if you follow Christ fully, it will be. Now, there's, that doesn't mean there won't be some bumps on the way, and uh, significant bumps. But, um, you know, my wife and I, for instance, I'm going to go through some things to be faithful, and hopefully before we end, uh, I thought I made a list somewhere. My wife and I uh, have always given a lot more than 10% of our income to Christ. We always have. We especially have during the times where things were bad financially. I took a 100% sales commission job, <laughs> and it's feast or famine. And I decided to do a little thing that some of the faith people do. They're not all wrong on everything, by the way. <laughs> and I decided to tithe on what I hope to be making. And it, and it worked. I'm not saying you should do that. I was felt led of the Lord to do but you, you, you shouldn't, if you're giving less than 10% of your gross income to your local church, and you're not giving, then find a church that's worthy of it. And if you're not giving some offerings to other Christian causes, one of the reasons I give to causes that are Grace Christian Fellowship is it reminds me, we're not the whole kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do something here. Amen. Right? So, Catherine and I have an annual meeting where we decide... What causes we're going to support at what levels uh, for the com- upcoming year that aren't Grace Christian Fellowship? Missionaries, different people we know in ministry, different organizations we think are doing a good job. I love the one from Colorado who introduces Bibles into communist China because I love to tease them when they call them and say, they're the ones who smuggle Bibles in the connection. No, no, no. We introduce Bibles. <laughs> They're not allowed to say smuggle. That's different. And I'm just that ordinary. Well, I love that you smuggle Bibles in the China. <laughs> you know, because they basically want to make the point that no government has the right to say you can't have the Word of God in your country. All right. So, uh, and they're right. I'm just ordering. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, may beloved, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm way out of time, so I'm not going to turn and read some of these things, but 
you know, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 talks about not forsaking the assembling together. Galatians 6 talks about what you sow, you'll reap. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And uh, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, get beyond money and apply this to everything. Spiritual disciplines of reading the Word. Biblical studies. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. Some of the people who have the most countenance of Christ in this fellowship are the people who have the most beat-up Bibles. Right? Except the electronic Bibles. I don't know if you should beat up your electronic Bible. But, uh, you know, uh, fellowship. You know, there's a reason why we've taught and taught on the Lord's Day, and still some people hit 25, 50, 75% of the Lord's Day. I don't come on the Lord's Day if I'm throwing up so bad and so sick that I make my kids sick. But I'll tell you this, I plan my week so that almost never happens. I have missed an average of one Sunday about every three to four years, not because I'm the pastor, but because the Lord's day is holy to the Lord. You're not going to be blessed. You know, Catherine and I uh, like to walk. We Part of the reason I was up all night last night, or, well, not all night, I got back up at three. I was up rest of the night, but to get this done was uh, because we went walking yesterday. It was too nice a day not to go walking, right? So, but I can remember walking on the, you know, the mounds at the park, and I would say to Catherine, don't step in a gopher hole or a woodchuck hole or anything. Unfortunately, there, one of them was covered by leaves. She stepped in it. She sprained her ankle, and she couldn't walk for four to six weeks or so. But we never missed church over it, nor did she miss church over it. You know, this may sound a little crazy to you, but when my parents had their 40th anniversary, uh, my dad died a couple years ago, but they lived, they lived to celebrate 65 anniversaries. And uh, my mom's still alive, and I still talk to her on the phone. But I don't go to see her a lot, because that would mean missing the Lord's Day with you guys. And I have that commitment to you. And, you know, I it, it kind of takes me off, to be honest, that I... You know, we, you wouldn't believe what Jason, John, Stephen, lots of our core people go through the hoops to do this for us. And then people are like, eh, I'll come if the sun's not in my eyes. Really, the reason the early church considered the Lord's Day what's called a mortal sin. Now, the concept of a mortal sin is not completely biblical, but neither is the way evangelicals think about sins. So in the evangelical world, they rightly take a verse like in James where it says that all sin is sin, right? So that's true. But not all sin has the same consequences. And so the idea of a mortal sin was kind of a way of saying, you know, uh, you know, to be honest, things like sexual sins, like I, whenever a guy struggling with sexual sins, I have him read a book by a very good pastor from California named uh, Jack Hayford, called Fatal Attractions, Why Sexual Sins Are More Harmful Than Others. Because that will destroy you more than uh, 
eating sugar in the short run. Mm-hmm. Eating sugar takes a lot longer to kill you. <laughs> Thanks. Tom Brady says, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Give me some more ice cream. All right. Now. Um, you know, it, you know, um, it was actually considered in, in biblical times that if you missed the Lord's Day, you were probably backslidden. And it was questionable whether where your commitments to Christ's life were at. And one of the things, like when you become a Christian, you really do need to reprioritize your life. And I'm preaching, you know, they hard preaching leads to soft hearts. I hope you won't get mad today, but if you get mad, I love you too much to see God not blessing. Uh, like, I, I don't want to, you know, part of the reason we started, started this church, to be honest, was we saw uh, some very good churches where the youth were walking away from Christ. We actually attended uh, two of the most popular mega churches in our area, one known for the, the power of the Spirit and so forth, and none of the teenage kids were walking with God. And one of them had a, like a youth worship band, and there was a guy living an active homosexual lifestyle leading the worship, and another guy who was uh, leading the worship on other nights, and two worship leaders, the other one was a crystal meth addict, and uh, eventually ended up living in his car. And, and, and but nobody even knows because they're they're a mega church and nobody knows anybody. Nor do they have enough discernment to see it in their spirit. And I was like, my, my kids aren't going to be a part of that. And I'm not trying to be critical. The Lord is passionate about holiness. Not cultural holiness. I don't care if you wear pants or a dress, except the guys don't wear dresses. <laughs> Unless you're Scottish or something. But uh, <laughs> what do they call those kilt kilns? Yes. Kilts. Uh, don't don't do that. I'm not Scottish enough. Uh, <laughs> no. John ten ten. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I want to see all God's people having that. In every way. I want to see God bless your marriage. I want to see God bless your kids. I want to see God bless your financial decisions and your vocational calling and uh, your relationships. And I want to see you regularly able to lead someone to Christ and disciple them. So here's some final things about what you should sow to. You Sowing and reaping is an inevitable law of the universe. Okay? So... In the first thing is individual vertical spiritual disciplines, foundational books, Bible study, fasting, worship, prayer. You've got to you've got to make times for these things. If you don't have time for that stuff, then you're probably not in God's will for your life. Now there are seasons of my life where I have a little less time for those things because I'm you know like lately. We've, God's been bringing a lot of new people. I've been having 50 and 60 hours uh, a week of meetings with new people. But there are other seasons where I step away from all that just so I can spend time for hours seeking God and reading His Word and so forth. You need me to do that. And frankly, we all need you to do that. I'm just being selfish because the more you get healthy with the Lord, 
because it is the pastor him. Corporate horizontal disciplines, the Lord's Day discipleship. Are you seeking out someone qualified to disciple you? And are you meeting with them at least weekly? Or are you let, letting that get pushed out? Service. Do you serve in certain ways? Like, you know, it, it kind of blows my mind. Small groups Friday nights, let me finish this. But by the way, what's going on on Friday nights is so amazing that you shouldn't miss it. If you are struggling at all with zeal or oppression or not being that spiritually insightful or you can't kick and break certain habits or whatever, come to a, get into a place where you're worshiping in a powerful spirit of worship two, three, four times a week. And eventually, that'll start to filter into your life and into your wife and into your kids and into your family. Uh, there's a book called The Disciplined Life Studies in the Firing Out of Christian Discipleship. I used to read that book once a year when I was the first 10 years of being a Christian because I wasn't very disciplined. But look at all your priorities. It's amazing to me how so many people are Christians, but they don't bring their family priorities. You know, uh, when, when our kids were young, we I taught their, or coached their baseball teams, and we did some soccer and stuff like that. But we never joined a league that would cost us to, to miss the Lord's Day. Never. Nor would we have. And if they had it on the Lord's Day, I would have tell them, I'm not going to participate on the Lord's Day. And, uh, I didn't do jobs on the Lord's Day. Next thing, pursue your calling and develop your gifts. I'm, I'm always amazed that certain people will tell me they're called to do this and that and the other thing. Uh, I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to lead in. But they're not really doing the right steps to get there. And I'm like, here's, here's something you need to understand. When you stop having a radical pursuit of the of the Lord, you're 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 dead. Might as well go go to heaven. We have five C's that you should memorize. You've got to pursue the caller before the calling. Because if you don't, your calling will start to become an idol in your life. Then you've got to pursue character before you pursue charisma. Because then you become the kind of person that prays for people and ministers to people all the time, but your life doesn't back it up enough in the quality of your marriage or your finances or where your kids are or whatever. And that is not biblical at all. You look at the qualifications for leadership in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Titus 1, it's all about like where you're actually at. So reprioritize, sacrifice, pay the price, and get understand it's about rewards. It's about the reward of the Lord himself. And I, I really do. I think every day about two things that are my life goals. I want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and watch person after person after person go forward and, and God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know that not myself and my spiritual children 
for hopefully for several generations had a lot to do with why they're in that condition. That's, that's what I, I think about every day. I live my life for that. That's what I pray for you for. That's what I try to work for with you for. That's really what motivates me and makes me tick. I could care less if we're ever famous or sell any books or, or can afford real carpet without holes in it or anything like that. You know, uh, but I do care about you standing blameless and holy and complete and blessed in the presence of God and your children rising up to call you blessed and your grandchildren serving the Lord because of the way you raised your children. That's what I care about. And uh, I care passionately about that. And the second thing is I hope that that all adds up to someday well done, good and faithful servant, and that it takes some of the sting out of the fact that I know how far short I fell of what I was called to be. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons you've got to keep chasing uh, the call of God on your life is I think that when it says God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, that's not about like, you know, I've, my two of my brothers have died, my parents, well, my mom's still alive, grandparents, I'm 60 years old. At least once a month, somebody that I helped come to Christ or whatever, good long-term friends die once, at least once a month at my age. And uh, um, I, I could care less about that on a certain level because what really the t I think the tears are about is about we're all going to know what we were called to be and, and how far short we fell at that. And as much as I can help you close that gap, no one's going to close it perfectly because we have a sin nature and we're finite and it's a messy culture right now and so forth. But the more I can help you close that gap where you become who God intended you to be, the more that I my life was worth being here. That's the only reason I'm here. So I guess we'll stop there. Uh, because I don't know where I am on the sheet. Uh, there's a bunch. <laughs> there are a bunch of scriptures. I memorize some of these. I love is it's good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. You guys that are under 40 or so, you have an opportunity that us 60-year-old people who can barely walk anymore <laughs> don't have. No, really, pay the price now. There's like this doctrine in our culture that if you don't get like eight hours sleep, it's super unhealthy and so forth. What nonsense. Jesus prayed all night. Isaiah talks about it. It's called a watch. Yeah, I, you know, people maybe say I'm nuts, but when I was in college, I studied on my knees all the time at night so that I wouldn't fall asleep because that was the only way I could get honored grades go to three or four fellowship meetings a week and hold myself to three hours Bible study a day and work a part-time job. But I knew I was called to do that for, for this time of my life. And I knew I had to sow every day toward that. And I knew I could catch up on sleep when I got to be old. And I do get to sleep most six days a week. I get to sleep a lot now. First Timothy 6, flee these youthful things, fight. Fight, read, read, read uh, First and Second Timothy. It's a letter from a father to a son saying, go win. But win how God looks at winning. 
I, I am so amazed at the disciplines that people have to win some stupid, idiotic, shallow thing like an NBA championship or an NFL championship or something, and the average Christian doesn't put anywhere near the effort into it. If you're putting in less effort than a professional athlete would put into their craft, maybe you should rethink your calling. I'm never going to be invited back to the 1030 message. <laughs> I just done blown. Uh, don't fight, you know, like 1 Corinthians 9. By the way, I, it, when he says I discipline my body, literally in the Greek it means I bruise my body. Some of you like the King James because it says I buffet my body. And you misread it and thought it said I buffet my body. Alright, so again, I'm ending this with I behold my reward is with me. So let's let's get Jason up here. I'm way past time. I, I love you guys. I, I really didn't but I'm just uh, to be honest, like it, I, I guess I'm gonna share one more thing. Get ready, Jason. We're, we're in a season of visitation, amazing visitation. And there's always those people who are at three, four, five meetings a week who serve this way, and they study this much, and so forth. And some of them have wives and kids and, and everything else, and there's all these, all these people who don't. And I can see it in like how their kids look spiritually. I can see it in how, how much they're growing. And I'm jealous for you to get it all. That's all. Like, I don't want you to be getting 5% of what God, Jesus, died to give you. <coughs> and especially in a time like this, what happens in every season of visitation, there's certain people missing today. I knew they'd be missing. I actually made a list at my house. I'm not going to share it with you. Who would be missing today? Because there's certain people who are missing whatever the demons and Satan and their flesh don't want them to be here. Because they don't want them to hear this message. And they're not even spiritually discerning enough to know the difference yet. And every time we get in a season of visitation, the people who are kind of on fire and pressing in get, get deliverance and inner healing and good things happening, and they grow and they get further along where they're supposed to be. But then there's other people who don't guard their heart and don't guard their life, and they end up crashing and, and uh, falling into all sorts of <laughs> sins and sidetracks and other and wrong priorities and they and they miss out with, on what God's doing in their very midst. I used to think about that all the time in Bowling Green when I were seeing a great visitation of God. How many hundreds of students come to this campus and get a degree and don't even know what God's doing here? You know. It's amazing to me, you know, in the Gospel of John, there's a passage where God spoke over Jesus a second time, not the same one as at his baptism, and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And some people said that it thundered. I don't want you to be the ones who thought it thundered. I rest my case. Amen.